0: If you're new with us, we have begun a study on the book of Genesis. We're in our third week. Um, we've made it all of two verses the, uh, the first two weeks. We're going to um, pick up a little bit more ground today, and actually we're going to get up through verse 26. But I have seen the importance of just um, crawling through the book of Genesis. As, as we're teaching it, I'm realizing more and more that um, just laying a foundation of how we're even studying it is really valuable. Because it's something where um, we probably have heard Genesis taught in many different ways. We come at it many different ways. And uh, we want you guys to all be on the same page so we could learn the book together. So um, before we start getting deep into uh, those verses, I want to talk to you a little bit about how we're endeavoring to teach the book of Genesis Um, Because when we aim to teach a book, our goal is for you to be able to leave here and study that book, to be able to see Jesus in it, to be able to draw closer to God in your devotions, to be able to apply those scriptures to your own life. Um, If if you leave here and you say, he really had a good understanding of the text, but I couldn't do that, then we do you a disservice. That That doesn't help you. We want to give you the tools so that you can be able... ...to be fed from this book as you go through it and that you would be able to learn it. So Genesis is a book that depending on how long you've been around church or have not been around church... ...you may have heard it taught um, many different ways. A few of those different ways um, I have up behind me. um, People can teach about certain events pertaining to man's origins using the book of Genesis. So for example, if you were going to do a study on the original nature of man... You wouldn't be able to do that without looking at Genesis chapters 1 through 3. Um, People could teach on the characters of the book of Genesis. We've been trying to drive home the first two weeks that Genesis is primarily a book about God, but it's also about how God is creating and interacting with and using a real people to carry out his very real mission. Um, People can teach the culture of the book of Genesis. You could teach all kinds of ancient Mesopotamian literature and teach the culture and show how this book fit into a real cultural time and place with real customs and how those customs both helped shape the way this book was made and how this book then helped shape the customs that it was given to. Um, People could teach the content of the book of Genesis. The, The content's of this book are critical. They take us back to the very beginning of what God was up to and how God began to engage humankind. People could teach the literary style of the book of Genesis. I hope you know that Genesis is an artistic piece of literature. It is more than that, but it is also that. And it's certainly not less than that. So I'm not going to bash on any of those methods. They are all very important. And most of those are actually not mutually exclusive of one another. In any good teaching of Genesis, you should be incorporating several of those and weaving them together to give people a more robust understanding of the book. But I took a class on Genesis, about eight or nine years ago that the Lord really used to challenge me and to shape me. I had this professor that taught Genesis in a way that was foreign to me. It sounds so simple, but I remember sitting through these lectures and feeling like, wow, this is is very awkward to me because I had never understood the book of Genesis like this. What he taught was, why did God give the book of Genesis to begin with? Why did he give it the way that he chose to give it? And why did he give it to the people whom he chose to give it to? So every text, he would take us, but we would start to go off on all these different directions about, um, well, I think that, you know, this was really what creation began to look like and the, the earth is this old or that, that and he'd say, okay, stop, that's great. That's great and everything, there's value in that, but stop. What was God up to? when he was teaching this text. And he would always keep taking, as far as the class would go off in one direction or another, he would stop you and say, no, is that what God was trying to teach through this text? So uh, I think that I always looked at Genesis as sort of like a combination of the sum total of all of its parts, I knew the stories. I was able to put the stories together. I was able to form somewhat of a narrative story line. Um, I've also looked at it for different areas of systematic theology. I know that you could go and find like the first mention of different areas uh, like uh, total depravity, uh, the nature of man. Uh, You could go into it and start to see the beginning of the gospel and the beginning of the redemptive narrative of scriptures. I studied it Christologically and shown... Like, where do we see Jesus throughout this text? And all of that was really valuable, but it's really powerful when it comes under the umbrella of simply asking, what was God intending as he gave us this text? And I think um, the only book that maybe we can get as far off on what was God intending and when he gave it as Genesis is Revelation. Sometimes I can hear these teachings on Revelation And I wonder, like, did you even stop to ask, is this what God was up to when he gave the text? And I can feel the same way about Genesis and the way that it was taught. So as you begin to approach it like that, you see some big themes like um, what God is doing as he's putting together the book of Genesis. And it's really critical. To see why he puts together the passages the way that God chooses to put together his own passages. I mean, think about this. This is a book by God. If you want to know about an author, you might go and look at their first bestseller. This was God's first bestseller. This was his his first edition. Here, this is his first manual that he's giving. So this is a book about God, written by God, to tell the unique people of God something about God that God thought it was important for them to know about God. So there's just God all over this book. And that's why it starts off with, like I've said, in the beginning God, not in the beginning you. It starts off as just very God-central from the very beginning of the text. And really, God should be able to call the shots in how he shapes his narrative, right? So as we look to understand the creation account in a way that God intended for the original audience to see what God was up to, I want you to consider two passages about creation that we used to set up the text last week. I'm going to use those and then springboard into Genesis. So first, Romans 1, 19 through 20. It says, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made and not made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. To him as God, and they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So, what this text is saying is that through creation, God expected to be known, and He expected that there would be things that we would be able to know about the invisible God by looking at His creation. So, if that's the case, then there should certainly be things that we're able to know about God from his creation narrative. What was God expecting these people to be able to see about himself through his creation? So much so that he's saying they're without excuse if they don't see it. Or consider Job 38 that we looked at last week. Remember, this was Job when he was fearful and and he's questioning God in the midst of this fearful season of his life. And it says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by my words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man and I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? And then he goes on about all of these deeds that he does in creation. But he says, Where were you, Job, when I created this? So God expected his creation to convey something about himself for his people to understand. And that much is so clear in the way that he corrects Job. He's saying, Job, how did you look at my creation and arrive at these off-base conclusions about me? Even to the point where he's asking Job, how did you miss something that I thought was so evidently clear? And remember, remember about old Job. Job didn't have a copy of the Bible like you guys have in your hands. Job didn't even have the book of Genesis. If you study the life of Job, most people say he was a contemporary of Abraham, lived around 2000 B.C. We believe that um, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, were given around 1400 B.C. So it wasn't until 500 years after Job that a Bible even came onto the scene. And remember that Job didn't have the full revelation of, of our Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done for us to show us his faithful love so what did God expect Job to be able to know about himself and as I think of that I wonder what did God expect the Israelites to know about himself and what is he hoping to see from us me and you, as we sit here. I read through um, this commentary that had a great quote on the theme of this passage, so I'm just going to steal this and use it directly. It says, the textual goal, and therefore the sermon's goal, is to comfort God's fearful people with the knowledge that our God is the sovereign creator God who controls the world's destiny and ours. I'm going to read that one more time. It was so good. I I was just, pouring over commentaries. And then I found this one nugget of a statement. I was like, oh, it is so good. And I feasted on it. To comfort God's fearful people with the knowledge that our God is the sovereign creator God who controls the world's destiny and ours. So this creation story is actually a sermon. And I'm going to explain that a little bit more in in a moment. But like any decent sermon, it has a main point to it. Look at verses 1 through 5 with me so we can begin to dig into our text, and then we'll crawl along as we go through the different days. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light. And there was light, and God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. So I'm sure that referring to Scripture as a sermon is probably foreign to some people. You probably think a sermon is something that a preacher um, tells about Scripture. Usually they open up the Bible and they give you a message and that's what a sermon was. But remember, these people are hearing this for the very first time. They are not getting the advantage of hearing Genesis after it had already been written down. This original audience is hearing this message delivered for the very first time and they're hearing it as a sermon from Moses and God is using their unique circumstances to deliver a sermon to communicate certain truths about God and words of comfort from God himself. I mean think about the situation they had just come through. I want you guys to um, we, we need to do a little bit of history so that you could receive this text the way that God actually gave this text on a platter to be received. So let's walk back in history. Put yourself in the shoes of the original Israelites that received it. They had their backs up against a wall or better yet a, a, a sea. Their backs were just previously up against the Red Sea, the original audience that received this. They had just been freed and they were brought into a barren wilderness so they went from slavery into desert. They had just escaped from one deadly army, the Egyptian army, probably the greatest superpower on the earth during the time that this was written, and now they're camping on the border of the Jordan River, and there's a dozen other equally as deadly armies, and they're told that they're going to go into the land, cross this river, and go and fight these 12 deadly armies. And remember, these are not warriors, You could get into the book of Joshua and read through the conquests and think, wow, this is this roving band of warriors. These weren't warriors. This had been 400 years of slaves. Ever since um, Joseph went down and Jacob brought the twelve tribes down into the land of Goshen, it was just as soon as there arose a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph, it was just year after year after generation after generation of slavery. These were not skilled military men and women. And Don't view these guys the way that we would view Israel later on in the story and read that back into the text. It's easy to think of Israel during the time of King David and say, well, this was a super troop. This was an elite fighting force. This was not an elite fighting force. This was a group of grumbling crybabies who were hiding in the wilderness, and they were afraid. They had no real national identity They had no religious identity. This was not Jewish people the way you think of Jewish people. They didn't have the law and the customs. When they were in Egypt, it's not like they were following Torah, okay? When they were in Egypt, it's not like people were telling them stories of growing up as a little Jewish boy or a little Jewish girl in the land. They weren't hearing stories about all of their patriarchs and forefathers being told to them to the point where they didn't even recognize Moses as a deliverer when he came to set them free. They didn't have their Hebrew Bibles. They were not being immersed in Scripture, and they're having no interactions with the things that we would typically think of as the Jewish nation. And that's amazing to think about. Scripture is actually unfolding and happening in front of them. So keep all that in mind And with that backdrop, God shares about himself to a group of fearful, lost servants. And he starts off with this message of in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So he starts off with a message of the God who is there in the beginnings. Why? Why? Like I said, take it back to like that professor helped me to understand the book of Genesis. Why? Why did he take them back there? What was God trying to convey? Let me ask you this. In the way that you think, in a logical Western mind frame, wouldn't it have been easier with this fearful people who are in the wilderness if God just said look I'm going to write in the sky you know that I can because you've just seen a pillar of fire in the sky and a cloud in the sky so I'm going to write in the sky three or four simple steps that you could do to be able to go into the land inhabit it and that's it wouldn't that have been so much simpler but instead God chooses to tell them a story And you have to ask yourself why. The whole text begs of asking the question why. It's kind of like when you're going through something. Have you ever been going through something and you're just asking God, God, just give me an answer here. Just give me the next steps. I'll obey. Just show me what the next step is. And how often has God ever just come out and just given you like a clear writing in the sky and said, here you go, here's those next steps. I'm not saying that it's never happened. There have been a few times where God just knew that I was too hard-headed to be able to hear it any other way, so he's done things like that. But through the most part, God still works normatively the way that he worked here, through stories, through the cultivation and development of you as you live out your story. He could have chosen a more expedient way. Stories are not expedient, but it was the way that God chose, and we have to ask yourself why. Why? This whole text was really intended to be read as one continual unit. And the big picture was to be able to point the fearful people of God to comfort. So if you're here today and you've been walking in a season of fear and you're struggling with fear, we're going to take this whole text and be able to see what this grand God was doing with this grand text to be able to give the fearful people of God When we focus so much on these individual days, we actually lose the big idea that God was trying to communicate about himself to a specific audience going through a specific situation. I'm not saying that the individual days of creation are not important, but sometimes I hear Genesis taught where there's this emphasis on each individual day, and it's taught in a way that the original audience would not have even thought of or really cared much about. That's what I'm trying to get home to you guys. And and frankly, I I don't think that they would have cared much about it because I don't think that it's what God was trying to convey to them. When we get so mired down into the individual parts that we miss the obvious clues that God is just sitting there waving, saying, hey, guys, look, I'm here. I'm all over this text. Don't miss me. Don't read right past me, which you can do if you don't step back and look at the whole picture. Um, just in case you guys think that I'm supposed, I'm about to go off on some liberal um, tangent. I'm a literal six-day creationist. Um, I know that that's not cool today um, to be, Um, but um, before you go on thinking that uh, I'm going to get funny on you, I just want to lay my cards on the table of of where I stand, um, where my presuppositions are as I approach the book of Genesis, but sometimes I think that, and I'll bet you there's some of you out there, you should raise your hands and just tell on yourself, that um, sometimes I think we can become so concerned about trying to figure out what camp people are in Um, that we actually forget to listen and don't even pay attention to whether they were telling the text correctly. Every single time I've ever heard Revelation taught, that's what happens. Uh, Oh, was that a pre tribish mid tribish I don't know. Really? You think that's why God gave us the text? So that you could sit there and try to judge the person that's teaching it to you to see if they're doing it to your liking? Uh, You can be the most staunch, conservative, six-day, literal. This earth is 5,827 years old, 13 hours, 14 minutes. Um, And you could butcher this text when you're teaching through it because you end up focusing on things that God was never giving this text for his people to focus on. So I encourage you, get your minds out of liberal versus conservative. Turn off Fox News for five minutes. Listen to the message the way that God intended. And I want to ask you, do you think that there was one person sitting there, 1,400 years B.C., hearing this text saying, I wonder if God takes a liberal or a conservative view on creation. Like, that's nuts. Yet that's the way that Genesis is primarily taught in evangelical pulpits. It's nuts. That's not a distinction that the original audience would have even had in their minds to make. But let me put this as clearly as possible. Instead of focusing on what the unbelieving world tells you that Genesis is not saying, be the person that's attentive to what God is saying. You hear me on that? Because that, that deserved a couple of amens. Um, instead of focusing on what the unbelieving world is telling you Genesis is not saying, be the person that's attentive to what God is saying, okay? I truly believe that there are people that um, are more skilled in telling you what Genesis doesn't say than there are people that are skilled in telling you what actually says. Um, Listen to this quote. It says it so much better. than. It's a long quote, so I'm going to ask you to focus for a whole paragraph here. Um, So, how do we preach Genesis 1 today? A sound rule of interpretation is that one must first hear an Old Testament text as the author intended Israel to hear it. Now, it seems obvious that Israel is not concerned about the age of the earth or precisely how God created the world. These are modern issues which may or may not be answered by the text. If we wish to do justice to the inspired author of Genesis, we must begin by carefully listening to the text. Instead of imposing our modern questions on the text, we must hear this creation narrative as ancient Israel would have originally heard it. After establishing the textual unit, therefore, we must seek to determine the author's message for Israel, the theme, and why God wrote this message to Israel, the goal. Okay, so as we look at this textual unit, the first thing we see is that there is a brilliant order to the way that these verses are sculpted and put together. Uh, um, I I drew this little picture here um, from the most ancient of commentators. If you ever heard of Origen, one of the early church fathers, or Augustine, they pointed out that Genesis moves in Genesis 1 through this It's called chiastic, if anybody wants a uh, 25 cent word, this A, B, C, C, B, A structure. So we have day one here, two here, three here, four, five, and six. And each of these days are going to mirror each other. And this was too intentional and too awesome to not be by design. So first... God would create the structure. And then on the parallel day, God would create those who would have dominion over the structure. So in day one, he created light, as we've already read. In day two, in verses six through eight, he creates the firmament. He says, And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it be separated from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters, and they were under the expanse, and the waters above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And day three, we see two creative acts we see land and vegetation. And that starts in verse nine. And God gathered the waters under the heavens and gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear down in verse 11. It starts to sprout forth vegetation. And in verse 13, there was evening and there was morning, the third day. In day four, we begin to see the light bearers that are going to have dominion over day one. It says, And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day and the night. And he gave, and God sent them the expanse of the heavens. He gave light to the earth to rule over the night and separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and morning, the fourth day. In day five. So going back to the structure. First, God creates the first day. Then he creates the light bearers on the fourth day showing that he's able to have dominion over that which he just created. He creates the light, and then the light bearers. Day five, same thing in keeping up with the pattern. Day five, we see the inhabitants of the sea and the sky and the fish and the birds. So God created the sea and the sky on the second day, and day five, he then populates the structure that he created. All kind of coming back to day six, where the land and the animals and the humans, the pattern continues. God first creates the sphere, and then he comes and he populates the sphere, and then all focusing back to God, where every text should be, on the seventh day he rested. So I read a great quote to show you what God was actually getting at in the order that he wanted the original hearers to see this. Check this out, this is so cool. It says, remember how Israel feared the powerful pagan gods? Notice where the author places the creation of the sun and the moon and the stars. He places them on the fourth day, right between the creation of the vegetation, day three, the creation of the fish and the birds, day five. He is saying to Israel that these powerful pagan gods, the sun, the moon, and the stars, are as much of God's Creatures as are the vegetation, the fish, and the birds. So why would you fear them? What a powerful message when you're coming out of this pagan land with this pagan deities from a people who had used those to subjugate a fearful people. Another word about the structure is just the repeated use of language to be able to drive God's point home. Every single one of the days shares this in common. It starts off with, and God said, and God saw. And God said, and God saw. And God said, and God saw. Okay? So every single one of the days repeats the same creation pattern. And God said, and God saw. Don't overlook the importance of repetition. It's not like God forgot, like, oh, man, I better put some pronouns in here because I just keep repeating the word God over and over and over. Maybe I should put a he in there. No, he wants you to know this was God who said it, this was God who called it, and this was God who saw it to completion. He's making a point. That every single thing that your Lord decrees, He is able to see through. Hear that. Every single thing your Lord decrees, He's able to see through. And God said it, and God saw it, over and over and over and over. So remember our theme, and take that back to the theme that I said in the beginning, to comfort God's fearful people with the knowledge that our God is the sovereign Creator God who controls the world's destiny and ours. Well, this God who spoke and created is the same God who maintains and sees that it is good. And take notice of this. This is important. I'll bet you for somebody here today, this is probably the most important thing that you're going to hear. God was giving these people a message about himself during their greatest hour of testing. Hear me on this. God is giving the people a message about himself during their greatest hour of testing. And that should tell us something. Sometimes when we're going through testing and we think that we need to hear a message about our trials or about our circumstances, that's actually the last thing that you need to hear. When we focus on God, God is big and the circumstances are small. When you focus on the circumstances, the circumstances are big and God is small. So God's taking the time in their hour of need not to tell them, hey, here's the weaknesses of the Egyptian army, here's the weaknesses of the Canaanite army, here's how you could get yourself out of a pickle. Just take these three easy steps and you will be excellent. And he's saying, no, stop! Look at me. I'm brilliant, I'm huge. And as you fix your eyes on me, these things will be put into their proper perspective where they always belong. And it's culminating in the final days of creation. He's about to do something unique altogether. Look at verses... Uh, 20 We're just going to look at one more verse. Verse 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image and in our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish and the sea and the birds and the heaven and the livestock... And all of the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We're going to go, we're going to spend a whole um, message on just that text next week. So I don't want to go too far into it. But I do want to point it out to show you that not only is God huge. But he is telling this creation story in a way that lines up to say, look, you... Are the apple of his eye. Brothers and sisters, look at me. This huge God, you are the apple of his eye. One of the reasons that it's important to see this as a sermon is because of the literary structure. When God keeps repeating the same thing over and over, we should take notice. But when he's repeating the same thing over and over and over, because this is neat, Check this, I'm going to give you guys a little hermeneutics lesson. If he's repeating the same thing over and over and over and over, and then the sixth time, he begins repeating it the same way again, but then all of a sudden, he kind of deviates and breaks from the structure and gives a different punchline. We have to ask ourselves why. So, five days in a row, it has the exact same structure. And God said, and God saw. But here, and God said, and then after five times of repeating the same pattern, he begins with the pattern, and God said, but then he begins to deviate and he just starts to talk about and marvel about and brag about this wonderful new creation that's created in the Imago Dei in his very image this thing that he's going to call man showing that there's a focal point here it's like the old knock-knock joke Um, knock-knock banana knock-knock banana knock-knock No, don't give the punchline. I give the punchline. Banana. Knock, knock. Banana. I got two more of these. Knock, knock. Banana. Knock, knock, knock. Orange. Orange. Glad I didn't say banana. Um, Now, that's exactly what he was just doing. And God said, and God saw and God said, and God saw. And then he gets to the sixth day, and he's like, ha-ha! Aren't you glad I didn't say banana? I'm about to tell you something altogether unique. And then he inserts himself more into the story. And the point he's making is, hey, pay attention. I'm trying to get your attention here, because I'm about to do something really, really special. All of God's creation was good and pleasing. But there is something that was unique about his creation of man from the very onset. This world would seek to tell you that you're not unique, that you are a random assortment of chromosomes and cells and DNA. Um, There was a museum that was actually built in um, England a few years back, and they put a sheet of glass, it was a house, and they cut it in half and put a sheet of glass on the front of it. And they referred to it as the homo sapien zoo. I I wish that I was joking here, but I'm not. And the point of it was to give you the opportunity to be able to go and see that we're just animals, just like every other animal, and there's nothing distinct or unique about us. This world would seek to tell you that you are not distinct, that you are not created in the image, image of God, that you are not lovely. But this text tells us something altogether different. That's why it's structured to the focal point, the razor-sharp edge that it comes to. It's saying you are unique, that you are the most precious amongst God's creation. You are the only ones in whom he has such deep delight. You are the only ones that have ever caused him the agony of having to put to death his own son to have redemption to be able to bring us back into his fold, which is such a mystery that it says in First Peter that the angels even long to look into this because they can't understand this story of this glory of God who came to redeem us. You are the only ones that he was willing to crush the second person of the Godhead to be able to bring you back to himself. God sees you as beautiful. So some application from what God intended for us to get from this text. Back to the theme. God presents mankind as created in his his image and unique and seeks to comfort his fearful children with the knowledge that our God is the sovereign creator who controls the world's destiny and ours. This comfort was set up for those who are unique amongst his creation. And if he thought to deliver a message to people like this that were going through this specific fearful situation that I laid out for you in the beginning of the message and he wanted those people to know that they're unique and they stand unique amongst his creation then it stands to reason that, I've got five points up behind me that God knew about this situation that was causing them to fear so it stands to reason that this same God who is sovereign of all creation knows about the situation that is causing you to fear as you sit here today, brothers and sisters. Number two, God cared that they were fearful and sought to comfort them. So it stands to reason that God cares and wants to bring comfort into the areas that are causing you fear. Number three, the answer to the fear was not a sermon about how God changes circumstances. It was a sermon to get them to focus on how big God is. So it stands the reason that God is not allowing your circumstances for you to get lost in your circumstances but for you to fix your eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of your faith. Number 4, the Israelites needed to truly believe that God was bigger than their fears and was able to show himself mighty in the midst of them. And lastly, Sometimes the best way to see God is not to look under every rock, but to take a step back and look at him through the landscape. And that's what Genesis 1 is about, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. God, thank you for your magnificent word. I thank you that you tell precious stories because we are your precious children. And you care about us having relationship with you and relationship rightly. I pray that we would feast of that and enjoy that now as we partake of your table. In Jesus' name, amen.